Um, so to answer your question that's going through your mind right now, Ashton Kutcher is not about to come out. You're not being punked. I'm actually speaking this morning. So, okay, that one, they laughed harder at that one in the last service. So, um, it's okay. Um, but yeah, um, I am speaking. Hi, I'm Josh. Um, those of you who don't know me, I'm the worship pastor here. Normally, they hide me behind a guitar or a piano. Um, so today, if you see me do this with my hands, it's because I don't know what to do with them. So, um, yeah, I... I kind of do this a lot, so just don't mind my awkwardness, and we'll jump right in. Um, so my, my word is life. Um, Chris, his word the first week was influence, and he just basically gave us our vision for our church this year, that we want to start to understand and start to move towards being a people of influence, seeing what that means and how it relates, and, and how to take what we learn here and take it out there. Um, Ryan, last week, he talked about passion. Um, that was originally one of my ideas for my words, but we flipped a coin and Ryan decided he was more passionate than I was. So um, I get life, and some of you can't see it because I'm standing in front of it. Hold on. Life. Um, and really, why did I decide on life is the question. You know, a lot of what we talk about in here is, um, is about life. It did it, it did it last service, too. We may just have to get used to it. I think it's the monitor back there, just to let you know if you cut Sean's monitor off. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's definitely Sean's monitor. Um, it, it was messing with me last service. I, I really was so mad I wanted to punch a kid um, halfway through the service. I'm not even kidding. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm about to go judo chop that thing. Um, but life, it, it, really everything's about life. It's about the way we live. I think, you know, we, we talk about a lot of things in here, and we have, we have a lot of concepts and a lot of um, practical knowledge that we learn, but until we start to live it out, until we start to play these things out in front of our culture and within our church, um, really, what's it all for? Um, and so today, we're going to talk about life, and really, two things in particular. We're going to talk about kind of our life within the church and a Christian's life outside of the church when we're in culture. Um, I'm Last time they told me I harped on the first part of this a little bit, so I'm going to try and get, a, get through it a little bit quicker this time, um, but we're going to talk out of Romans 12, so if you guys have your Bible, you can turn to Romans 12 with me. Um, I don't have the, uh, the One Church Bible, or I would tell you the page number, so if anyone has that Bible, shout it out when you get the number. Um, yeah, so basically, the book of Romans is massive. It, it has a lot of stuff in it, and so quickly... I'm going to kind of give you an overview. John Piper, um, he's a pastor up north. It took him 11 years to take his church through this book. Um, they studied it verse by verse for 11 years. <laughs> and you think I'm boring. Um, 11 years. Um, a guy named John MacArthur, he actually walked his, um, his church through it in nine years. So apparently he had, his, um, he had the speed wheels on or something. I don't know. But nine years still doesn't seem that quick. I'm going to give it to you in the next three minutes. I laughed too when I thought about it. Um, basically, Paul, when he writes in, his, in, in all of his letters, he basically breaks it down into theology. He talks about really this deep stuff, and it's all a bunch of head knowledge, and what does it mean? Um, then as we move towards the end of all of his books, he always breaks it down into practical life. He breaks it down into, here's what you've learned, now take it and do something with it. So we see that um, Romans 1 through 3 basically says, in a nutshell, at your best, on your best day, you don't deserve God's grace. That no matter what we do, no matter who we are, on our best day, not our worst, but our best day, we don't deserve His love. We don't deserve His grace. Um, this one makes me want to do backflips on stage because I know that what's coming is that He saved me anyways. Um, which is a really cool thought. But Romans 4 through 7, uh, essentially it attacks the idea that a religion saves us. Um, I think in the Bible Belt we struggle with this a lot because in the Bible Belt we're taught, um, I'm a Christian, I go to church. Or I'm a Christian, I go to the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the this church or the that church. Or I'm, I act this way because my church tells me to. And so I'm a Christian. And what this really does is it really attacks that idea that we've, we've really has become so solid in our minds here that religion never saves us. It's only Jesus. And it doesn't matter what name is in front of your church. It doesn't matter what moral code you live by. Without Jesus, you have nothing. 
Um, and so Romans 8 through 11 has what we, what we like to call the meta-narrative of really the whole Bible. But essentially um, what that means is just the big picture. Um, we get into 8 through 11 and it, it essentially says that you're included in all of this. You know, we see throughout Scripture, really starting in Genesis but on through, that God didn't just come for the Jews. That God came for everyone. And so essentially what he had told the Jews to be was a light so that all people could know him. And so, really, it's just, it's just that, that overall picture. He's trying to, to paint with, with broad strokes there that we're, we're a huge, we're really a part of something much bigger um, than we are. Um, and then we get to Romans 12, and essentially there's, you can definitely tell the contrast, because like in, in chapter 6, it says, don't present your bodies as sin. But then when we get to 12, it says, but do Present your bodies as worship. And so it makes, this, it makes this drastic shift from all this head stuff and all these ideas to here's what you do. And so we'll start with Romans 12. I'm just going to kind of read through it really fast. Like I said, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but let's, um, let's just touch on this. Um, it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You may prove what, is, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And, and we can stop there, but as we continue to go through that, it, it just gives kind of a list. Um, if you're a teacher, teach. Um, if, if you proclaim God's truth, proclaim God's truth. If mercy is your gift, go give mercy. And so that's basically what it does, but this is where I want to kind of land for just a second. Um, because we, we talk about... We talk about service in church a lot of times, and really, I don't think we do. I don't think we do this topic justice a lot of times because we, as church leaders, we don't want to appear that we're desperate for you to help. Does that make sense? Um, it's kind of this. This I don't want to call it a facade, but it's this. It's this thing we want to act confident, so you're confident. Um, well, today I want you to know that we need your help um, because see, here it says that we're all a part of the body. Each one of us is a different part. You may be the hand, um, you may be the leg, um, you may be the face, and I may be the backside. I don't know. I'm just saying, <laughs> did you like that? I worked it in. Um, sorry. <laughs> backside. You knew I was going there. You know me better than that. Um, but essentially, what he's saying here, he implies it is that when the whole body doesn't work together, the whole body doesn't work right. And so here's my challenge to you guys today. And I did harp on this the last service. In fact, I had them down kicking them. And, and I'm not going to do that in here. Essentially, what I want you guys to hear is that we need you. We need your gift. If your gift is to go watch kids, babies, and hold them and pray over them, then by all means, go watch babies and pray for them. If your gift is music... Come up here and do music. If your gift is teaching, find a way to teach. If, I don't know, if your gift is lifting speakers and, and rolling cords, if you have a service-type gift, then do that. But see, here's, here's the issue we have right now, is we have a lot of churches operating this 80-20 rule that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Um, but I think it's more like a 20-100 rule. I think 20% do 100% of the work. And the problem is, is... We saw last service, and I'm, I'm not going to do it now, but I asked them, who serves in children's? They raised their hand. Who serves in this ministry? They'd raise their hand. Who serves in greeters? They'd raise their hand. And there was four or five people sitting in this room that raised their hands for every single one of them. They're wearing multiple hats because, see, the problem we have is we don't have enough people to fill those spots. We can't function if we all don't do our part. You know, I love, I love the part here. He says that we ought to think of ourselves more. Uh, we, we should be, essentially, we should be humble. We shouldn't think of ourselves as more than we really are. And there's this idea in churches, and I've noticed this within the Bible Belt, that when, when I walk into the room, because I have worship pastor 
before my name that they think that I should walk in with a cloud of smoke floating like this, like I'm a pastor, like for some reason the word pastor makes me any better than you. Or that it means that I shouldn't have to serve. Or that means that I shouldn't have to give everything I have to the church. But see, it doesn't mean that. It actually means that I'm held more accountable than you to do those things. I'm more responsible. But essentially, this has become an epidemic in the church. A lack of humility. Because see, what we, what we say by not really saying it, by coming in and dropping our kids off every week. And by coming in every week and saying, hey, you watch them while I go do what I want to do. What we're essentially saying is, I'm too good to serve. That's what we're saying. You may not say it verbally, but you're saying it to that person watching your kids because they've been in there two services that week because we had someone call out and we couldn't find replacements. Um, What I want you to know is I'm not trying to beat up on you. I'm not. Because it's every area of it's every area of the church, and really it's every church. I don't I don't care which church you go to in town. There's not a whole lot of them that are just packed full of volunteers. But here's what I know: I can't do what I do without you. Chris can't do what he does without you. Ryan can't do what he does in children's ministry without you. Because see, the playing field is level. The playing field is is. I mean, it's more than level. Like, I feel, I feel so unqualified to stand up here sometimes. And I'll tell you what I am. I'm grateful for the guys who get here every week and they set up and tear down. Because I wish, I wish I could have worked it out to have them on stage. Because I could show you a core group of about five guys that get here early every week. And they set up every week. They go to one of the two services. And by the way, they set up in here and then they go set up out there. Everything you see out there is done by these same five to six, maybe seven guys. And then they stay through the second service and they tear everything down. You think they want to go to lunch too? I'm hungry right now. Who's hungry? Yeah, all right. Um, I'm hungry. You know, I want to go home, but I can't go home. They can't go home until it's done. So essentially all I'm asking is that you just evaluate just kind of our motives today. That when we, when we walk out the doors, that when you walk by the hub table and you see things that say involved and you get a chance to sign up for a ministry, don't just pass that by because, oh, they have enough people. I'm here telling you today, I'm humbling myself, I'm dropping the facade, I'm telling you we don't have enough people. And essentially, to be a Christian within the church is to serve the church. To be a Christian within the church is to be humble and to serve one another in love. And so that... That's really all I'm going to say about that. We're going to show a quick video, and then I'm going to, I'm going to make a shift really fast um, to how we, um, how we relate to culture. So you can go ahead and play it. Christians are old-fashioned. Hypocritical. Anti-gay. Live in a bubble. Too involved in politics. Uh, they believe that they're fake. Phony. Um, talk out of both sides of their face. Um, have a list of rules and regulations that they have to follow all the time, and they're definitely not fun. Christians always have ulterior motives. So a lot of my friends, when they think about Christians, they think about people who have no clue, really. Uh, They live in a world that's not real. They're just kind of their own little existence, doing their own little thing. Um, And they are hypocritical. Some of them, again, we say certain things, we don't follow it up. People assume that you're coming from this closed-minded worldview. My non-Christian friends think that I am always judging them, that I think that I'm better than them. They assume that Christians don't like gay people. I feel like we're just in a place right now where we have to surprise people and challenge their assumptions about what Christianity is because the assumptions that people have about Christianity are so firm at this point that they can actually parody us with pretty good accuracy. Uh, the video is pretty tense. Um, I watched it this, this week as I was kind of preparing for what I wanted to say. And I wanted to show it because a lot of the perceptions we're going to talk about here in the next few minutes are actually on the video. Um, I, I do want to talk to you about a word I learned this week. It's, uh, it's called somnambulism. Scott, did I say that right? Yes. All right. Somnambulism. Who knows what somnambulism is besides Scott? One, two. All right. No one knows. Yes. I wasn't the only dumb one. Yes. I'm not calling you dumb. I'm not. I'm not. I just meant you don't know the definition. Sorry. Wow. Foot in mouth. Somnambulism is the clinical, the clinical term for sleepwalking. And how many of you sleepwalk? Come on, be honest. All right. Yeah, we have a few more in this service. Last service, they stared at me. I'm like, okay, so you won't be able to relate at all. Um, I want to tell you a story about my wife. Um, Samantha, you can wave. 
It's, it's okay. Hold your hand up, baby. They all want to see you. Um, this is going to be slightly embarrassing for her. So no one is allowed to talk to her afterwards. Wait till next week to make fun of her. Um, essentially, my wife has this huge issue, and we deal with it about two to three times a week, that she is the worst stinking sleepwalker I've ever seen in my life. And, and not only that, but she talks about the most mindless, just stupid things when she's sleepwalking. I mean, it, it, they make no sense, and she never remembers, but I do, um, unfortunately for her. Um, so, which is why when you get up in front of 300 people like I am now, it's best to not live with a sleepwalker. Um, Samantha, about a, it was probably about two months ago, two, three months ago, uh, we were in bed one night. It was actually a Saturday night, which for you guys, if you don't know this, I usually get here about 6.30 on Sunday morning, so it's very early. Well, about 3 o'clock in the morning, Sam, I feel her rustle in the bed, and she goes to roll out of bed. And so I'm like, oh, good. She's getting up, use the restroom, whatever. And then nothing happened. I didn't hear any footsteps. I didn't hear any doors open, anything like that. And I, I open my eyes and I kind of roll over and she is, she's staring at the window. It was, the blinds were closed and the curtains were pulled. It wasn't like she was admiring the amazing scenery of Exit 11 in Clarksville, you know? So she is standing there looking at the window like this. I kid you not. If there was any more expression on her face... I, yeah, it was bad. She was just blank stare. I was like, babe, what are you doing? She was like, I, I got to pee. <laughs> That's how she talks, by the way, when she's, uh, when she's sleepwalked. She's like, I got to pee. So for the, the rest of the story, I'm going to talk like that just to mimic and make fun of her. Um, I love you so much, baby. <laughs> um, essentially, she goes, oh, I got to pee. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. We'll, we'll go do that and then come back to bed. And so she walks, I, I see her take a couple steps. So I roll over. I'm like, good. She's going to leave me alone. I get to go to sleep. No doors open still. Now I know there's that whole, you shouldn't wake up a sleepwalker thing. I wanted to punch a sleepwalker in the neck because at this point I'm awake and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Well, I wake up, open my eyes. She is standing beside the bed like this. Just looking at me like this. Now imagine that. And I'm like, I mean, I just about jumped out of the bed. I mean, karate chop. I'm telling you, it scared me senseless. And I'm like, babe, what are you doing? She's like, I got pee. I'm like, okay, okay, great, great. We've been through that already. Why don't you go to the bathroom? I'll lay here and sleep. So she goes, she leaves, and about 30 minutes go by. I don't know what she was doing for 30 minutes. I don't want to know. I just know that she was probably in there for 30 minutes. She comes back, hear the door shut, and she never got in bed. I know, the story's long. You should have been there. Um, You know, so I wake up. And guess what she's looking at again? The window. The window. And she's standing at it like this. And I was like, babe, seriously, what is wrong with you? What's going on? She was like, I went to pee. And I'm like, okay, okay, that's great. So finally, we managed to get her back in bed and asleep. Well, she was already asleep, but you know what I mean, laying down asleep. And, you know, I I begin to think at that point, I I think in, in metaphors a lot, in analogies, and I begin to think how many of us suffer from some sort of sleepwalking. Because in culture, Christians are known for being oblivious. I'm just wondering how many of us walk around with our eyes wide open, and yet we're so stinking clueless as to what's going on. Anybody relate with that? Um, So for the next few minutes, I just want to talk to you guys essentially about how we can stop sleepwalking in this culture, how we can stop walking around mindlessly and begin to really start to engage culture where they're at Um, instead of this call of, hey, you guys come to us because we're better than you, how we can really start to say, hey, Jesus got down and dirty with you, so we're going to get in the middle of your culture and impact you. So let's let's really look at this. Um, As we we look at our big idea for the day... um, I think it really wraps it, wraps it all up. It just says we can't influence a culture that we avoid. And avoidance 
is never the answer. It's never the answer. It's like problems. You know, being married, I understand this a lot. Because a lot of times, it would just be easier to go to bed. We had one of these moments the other night. I don't want to argue. It was my fault. It was. I know that's surprising for all of you, seeing as how I'm close to perfect. Um, but I'm kidding. Um, and, but we had one of those moments the other night that essentially... I was wrong, but I wanted to go to bed. I wanted to avoid the problem. But guess what? It didn't get fixed. And we were mad at each other for most of the next day because I avoided it. And so we can't influence a culture that we avoid. We have to get in. We have to dig in with culture. You know, culture, they don't acknowledge us for a lot of reasons. And really, Ryan and and Chris have both touched on this the past couple weeks. But essentially... We either have one extreme or the other in culture. Christians either tick everybody off or they're non-existent and no one notices us. And so what I really want to look at is how we can find middle ground there where we can begin to live dangerous lives where God can look at us as people who are dangerous and empower us to go get culture and also finding middle ground where we're not a bunch of jerks. If I can just say it plainly, um, a lot of people throw out this phrase in Christian culture. Well, the gospel's an offense, so I hope they're offended. You're an idiot because saying the gospel is an offense, it may be, and it may, people, it may show people they're wrong, but saying the gospel's an offense doesn't give you a reason to be a jerk. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, sorry, by the way, I don't beat around the bush a lot. So, um, yeah, hopefully I don't tick all of you off, maybe just half of you. Um, so I just want to look at a, just a couple of perceptions that we have of Christianity. Um, not we, but that the world has of Christianity. Um, Cindy's going to put up this. And I, I want us just to look at it for a second. It'll get kind of quiet and silent, but let's look at it. The book I got these from is a book called Unchristian. And it's one of the most eye-opening books I've ever read in my life. But it talks about, essentially what I'm speaking on today is how we engage culture and how we get past the stereotypes that they have of us. And what I want you to know from reading that book, that that outsider 16 to 29, we're not talking about 10 people in a liberal city somewhere that they ask these questions to. We're talking thousands and thousands of people all over the country got polled. In the Bible Belt, Northeast, in the West, I mean, you name it. They got polled, these questions. Um, So I just want to kind of break these down. We're going to talk about some stuff that's going to be uncomfortable today. You're going to see some stuff that's uncomfortable, and I'm glad. um, Because growing up in church, we didn't talk about a lot of the dirty things. We didn't talk about a lot of the things that that culture will deem inappropriate. Um, So we're just going to jump right in um, with the first one. And that's uh, Christians are anti-homosexual. Um, let's jump into this. Um, you know, this is one of those hot button issues in the church because Christians have really were great about labeling sins. Um, we're okay with turning the blind, you know, turning a blind eye to our lust and our pride and our greed, but yet we'll see something like a homosexual and we'll deem them so filthy and so dirty because see, we don't understand that sin because I'm a dude and I'm not attracted to a dude. That makes you less of a person than I am, or because I'm a woman and. And I'm not attracted to a woman. You're less of a woman than I am. And see, the problem with this is when we begin to stereotype people is we begin to understand that we don't see them anymore how Jesus sees them. Because Jesus sees us, sees all this in us. Because see, sin is sin. And so as we begin to unpack this homosexual issue, we begin to see that it's really ignorance on our part. We don't understand it. We've never taken time to get in and really dig into culture. And we've never taken time to get in and ask them why they are the way they are. But we'll stand on the outside like a referee, if you will. See, a referee doesn't play the game. A referee stands on the sidelines and blows his whistle and calls fouls. But see, they don't know the agony of, the, of defeat. They don't know the joy of a win. And so we've become a lot like a referee with this issue that instead of being players in the game, instead of jumping in and saying, hey, guys, I want to get to understand you, what we do is stand there and we blow our, li- our whistle. That's a technical foul, man with a man. That's a technical foul, woman with a woman. Oh, you're dirty. Uh-uh, 15 yards. Can't do that. Can't do that. Can't do that. How? How dare us? How dare us not get to know them and judge them? Really, it's kind of funny because we get mad that people have these perceptions about us. 
But we've given them more of a reason to hate us than they've given us a reason to hate them. Um, My fear is that the world is going to begin to see us as this. Just look at it. It's uncomfortable. Just look at it. I mean, seriously, thank God for AIDS. God hates fags. You know, the thing that makes me more mad about this picture, I think, than anything else is the fact that they'll label that, they'll label that with Scripture. Because I don't know how much you guys have read the Bible. That's not my Jesus. It's not. Um, the Jesus I serve wouldn't say that. In fact, the Jesus I serve would probably be hanging out with them. Um, my fear is that this is what culture sees us as. Some backwoods, redneck-looking people that hold up some signs and will quote Scripture, but will never take time to love. And that's um, trying not to get angry. I'm really calming myself now because every time I see this picture, see what you don't see is the guy in the blue on the far right. From him over, I had to edit the picture out because some of the pictures were so gruesome and were so inappropriate. I couldn't even show them today. I probably would have lost my job for that. Um, these are the ones that were halfway okay to look at. Move on to the next one, guys. Um, judgmental. Um, 87% of people saw that were judgmental. You know, and this one is, uh, this one's a tough one um, for me because there's a lot of things that we're judgmental about. And, and I'll say that. There, there are many, many things that really I don't think we have a right um, to say. But, but here's one that, that should really um, get you guys to love me. And we're just going to talk about it because, like I said, I'm not going to avoid the hot stuff. Um, let's talk about abortion. Yeah, I know. This should be fun, right? Um, again, I'll say this. Um, I couldn't show the signs that they do at abortion rallies. I couldn't play the video clips of people that stand outside of abortion clinics. And some of the things the quote, Christians say to people going in there and get them. And really it's sad because yet again, the church has proven our irrelevance because we don't get into their lives and we don't ask them, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? We don't act like Jesus who was more concerned with the heart of the matter than he was the surface level. Um, we're more like the Pharisees who really, we look at the outside sin and we, all we can see is really the leaves on the tree. We don't dig up the root of the tree to get to the real problem. And that's what we've done with this issue. And, and again, I'll say it just how dare we say some of the things we say about those people with not getting to know them first. You know, it's really just comfortable and it's convenient. Um, hopefully you all don't hate me after that one. Um, Matthew twenty three thirteen through 27. I'm not going to read it. Um, but essentially Jesus um, has a run in with the Pharisees and Jesus, basically, the the whole heart of this passage is this, is that you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. You are like a really pretty tomb that's really whitewashed and it's beautiful, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Essentially, he calls them snakes and vipers, hypocrites. I mean, you name it. Jesus pretty much, in, in modern terminology, quote, lays the smack down. Um, because essentially Jesus didn't put up with it. And so what, what we begin to understand is that I think if we would focus more on people's insides and focus less on their outside, maybe, just maybe, they would stop thinking we're so judgmental. It's just a thought. Um, hey, (laughs) yeah. Um, you know, hypocritical. This one, uh, this one's pretty obvious. We're not going to talk a lot about hypocritical because, let's be honest, we've all been called hypocritical at some point in our lives. And, le- and, and let's be honest yet again that really culture in general is hypocritical. All of us, whether non-Christian or Christian, we're all hypocritical about something. You know, let's just get it out there. It doesn't matter if you're non-Christian or not. We say we are something and we are really so different than what we say. But here's, 
here's kind of why I think this is an issue, because I think we're the ones screaming the loudest. Um, yeah, maybe instead of, uh, yeah, instead of shutting up sometimes we, um, we keep running it when, um, our silence can't speak to him. Ryan told you about that quote that's in my office. It's one of the biggest quotes that's ever changed my life. It says, my silence doesn't speak to him. My words will be useless. And I'm thinking maybe our culture needs to see us live and be silent more than they need for us to be hypocritical and judgmental. Instead of feeling the need to say something, we could say nothing and not, um, not go against the very thing that we've just said. This last one, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over sheltered and proselytizers. Those things are obvious. Anyone who's read a Christian t-shirt or seen a bumper sticker lately knows that we're old-fashioned. We're out of touch. Um, sorry if that ticks you off, but, but honestly, like, most, most of the shirts I see just anger me. Lord's Gym, and he's bench-pressing his cross. I mean, seriously, come on. He was nailed to it. He's not bench-pressing it. Stop. Stop watering down our faith with stupid stuff like, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I mean, seriously, um, I actually saw a rebuttal, uh, a rebuttal um, bumper sticker to that one this week. It was actually pretty funny. It says, in case of rapture, can I have your car? And I laughed. Um, I laughed pretty hard at that one. Um, uh, wow. Uh, the rapture's not funny, guys. Um, this, but I do want to say something about too political. Those of you who know me know this is kind of a hot button issue with me. <laughs> I'm going to be very careful how I present this because it seems like every time we bring up politics here and we, we start to engage and have a conversation, somehow Josh ends up being the liberal nut job. But I never said that. Um, I'm a nut job. Um, but if we spend as much time talking about Jesus, as we do politics, imagine what this world would look like. I mean, really, you know, like I'm, and, and I'm trying not, um, trying not to um, be too harsh when I say this, but man, if we'd start being the church rather than waiting on the government to be the church, imagine what we would see. Imagine that if we stopped waiting on Washington to legislate and to have policy for social justice or policies against abortion or policies against homosexuality, and we actually started being the church. Imagine what culture would look like if we became not irrelevant, but we became engaging and we began to move towards culture. Just imagine what this country would look like. But see, no, no, that's too much because, see, we would have to give effort. And what we would rather do is let the criminals, sorry, not criminals, uh, politicians in Clarksville, we, we, would rather, we would rather say to them, hey, I don't really want to deal with abortion. I don't want to get to know anyone that's had an abortion or understand the hurt or the pain they've had. But I would rather you legislate something that says it's illegal so I can put down my sign and stop wasting my Saturday protesting. That's what we say. What we say, what we say is gay marriage is coming, which by the way, guys, the way our country is going, it's coming. You can gripe, you can argue about it as much as you want. Society is progressing that way. So here's the solution. Why don't Christians go meet up with some homosexuals and talk to them about why they are the way they are, begin to understand their culture. But Washington isn't the answer. Obama is not the answer. Uh -huh. Here's one for you. Sarah Palin isn't the answer. Okay, okay, sorry, I just ticked off everyone that was agreeing with me. You've shut me off. But she's not the answer either, because see, none of those guys are. Jesus Christ is the answer. You know, he, he put us here to be his hands and feet. And if we're his hands and feet, then I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that we've cut him off and we're helpless. Because Washington will never be the church. And right now, the church is not being the church. So my question is, is the world standing there saying, where's the church? We look at so many issues like social justice. We look at, at all the issues I've listed. Um, you've got a homeless population in Clarksville and, and, and Nashville that's skyrocketing. Where's the church? Are we waiting on government programs 
to feed people? Where's the church? The list can go on and on. Um, You know, all these problems, all of these perceptions, all of the, the other perceptions, there was another list of about 10 that aren't even on here. But all of these things can just be a bit overwhelming. Like, seriously, how do we look at this list and go, okay, all right, I'm fixing them all tomorrow. We can't. We can't. But I'll tell you this, there is hope. There is hope for culture. There is hope for the church. Um, I don't want to get up here and just present you with all the junk that we're doing wrong. There's a fix for culture. What is it? I think we need to first identify what the real problem is. The real problem. See, because right now we've got a, a, we've got a really surface level list of what people think. And I think most of us, if we were really, really honest with ourselves, would agree with most all of those that are up there. So what do we do? The problem is this. I'm going to turn to Mark, Mark 6.53, and I'm probably going to go into chapter 7. I just want to read this, and I want you to listen. I want to talk about Jesus, and then when I shift over to the Pharisees, I want you to hear what it says about them. Again, that's uh, that's Mark 6.53, if you guys are turning there. It says, when they had crossed over, they had came to a land at, I don't know what that word is, I know it's in Galilee, and more to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran out, ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there their pallets, those who were sick, to the place they had heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And many, and many as touched, sorry guys, my throat's being a little weird right now. And as many as touched it were being cured. Here's where we get into the Pharisee part. Let's go into chapter 7. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of their elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do, your, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly, that Isaiah prophesied, you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, there's a, there's a very... There's a very definite contrast here between what we see Jesus' ethic is and what the Pharisees' ethic. And I think it's put best. If you guys are readers, I would definitely suggest a book to you. It's a book called Your God is Too Safe. Um, it's by a guy named Mark Buchanan. He's actually, my, my brother lives in Canada and he works at a church up there. He's actually his pastor and he's one of, the, uh, one of the best minds I've ever met in my life. Just the way he sees things, the way he perceives and processes. I mean, the guy is just, he's brilliant. Um, but he, he writes on this passage and... Um, Here's what he said. I just want to read this to you for a second. The Pharisees had an ethic of avoidance, and Jesus had an ethic of involvement. The Pharisees' question was not, how can I glorify God? It was, how can I avoid bringing disgrace to God? This degenerated into a concern not with God, but with self-image, reputation, procedure. They didn't ask, how can I make others clean? They asked, how can I keep myself from getting dirty? They did not seek to rescue sinners, only to avoid sinning. Jesus, in sharp contrast, got involved. He sought always and in all ways to help, to heal, to save and restore. Rather than running from evil, he ran toward the good. And evil and fear fled. Look at Legion. For those of you who don't know, Legion, there's a story in the Bible. It's this demon-possessed man. Jesus shows up on an island, essentially. And this guy was nuts, pretty much. And everyone was scared of him. But Jesus walks up to him. He actually engaged the evil. He was a light in the darkness. He says, look at Legion. The man under assault by a demon mob. Everyone fears Legion, tries to banish him to tombs. But when Jesus shows up, it's Legion who is afraid, begging Jesus not to torture him. Jesus has come to seek and save that which is lost, not to destroy. He heals Legion and restores him to community. Jesus is not the least afraid of Legion's evil. Rather, the evil inside Legion fears the holy power in Jesus and is subdued by it. Darkness always flees light. You know what's sad is as I've read this 
and of thought. I think many times we take the ethic of the Pharisees over Jesus. See, that's, that's the problem. It's avoidance. It's avoidance. Um, instead of getting dirty and worrying about our, our position and our, I guess, how people look at us, we don't get down and dirty with people. And I think, that, um, I think the world is in need of that, and that's the fix. So we've got to get our hands dirty. We have to. Because, see, they're going to continue to hurt, and they're going to continue to be who they are and where they've been. So we can choose to go or we can choose to not go. I'll say this, growing up in the church, I grew up in a, in a church very different from here. I don't know how many of you feel that way, but this church is pretty different from most I've been in. I was told this growing up. And Christians don't hang out with those kind of people. Christians don't hang out with people who smoke. Christians don't drink. Christians don't cuss. Christians don't do this. Christians don't do that. Um, Christians don't sit near the bar in Old Charlie's. Because what people, people might think. I know, pretty stupid, right? Um, here's how it actually fleshed out for me, though. I watched my parents my whole life. And they're here. My, my dad, I'm Jerry and Mary. They're here. And... They lived in such contrast to what my church was teaching me that, thank God, I learned it from them. My, my mom owned her own business, and she worked around just some of the, some of the worst dudes. I mean, they, they were good people, but, man, they were rough by our standards. And I watched my mom be a light in the middle of that culture. I watched my mom go in there every week, and these dudes would straighten up in their chairs, and they'd be like, Miss Mary, how you doing? They said it like that, Miss Mary. How you doing? Okay, never mind. Apparently not. Um, my dad, my dad's a construction worker. And I tell you this, my dad is um, much like my mom. Um, he's the greatest man I've ever known. He's the greatest man I've ever known. Because, see, my dad doesn't do this. He doesn't do this and not do this. Because when my dad says it, he lives it. My dad has worked construction for how many years, Dad? 44? 44 years my dad has worked construction. Um, yes, that's a long time. And, and I, I don't want to overshoot here, but I would almost guess that my dad has led close to 1,000 people to Jesus in his time there. Because, see, my dad understood this one concept, is that ministry didn't just happen in a church. That ministry happened in the trenches. It happened where the people are. And so my dad goes into these cultures, which I don't know how many of you have been around construction workers. There's a few of them that <laughs> kind of rough. And my dad goes into that culture, and it's so funny to watch the way these guys respect my dad. I've worked with him before, and he walks in, and I'm telling you, he changes. Um, he changes the culture there. He's the light inside that darkness. Um, and we're, we're called to do that. We're called to do that. Um, <laughs> he was upset. Hope it wasn't my preaching. Um, but um, that, that's what I saw. That was my example. Um, I'm going to play this for you, but, but, but before I play this audio for you, I just want to tell you a little bit about, about myself. Um, I, I've kind of beat around the bush in worship, kind of telling you guys who I was before Jesus. And y'all are probably assuming, oh, he must have done some bad stuff. Well, I did. I mean, I don't want to glorify it. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it. But I know this. Um, it's going to be a little awkward because my parents and my sister are sitting here. Um, but I went to college after growing up in the church I did. And I went crazy. I went crazy. Um, I took everything I ever knew and I threw it out the window. And I started choosing things like sex and drugs and alcohol and violence and partying, um, you name it, I chose it. Um, I'm not going to share the war stories, if you will. I don't want to glorify it. Um, but you should know this, is that the person you see today is a product of God's mercy. It's a product of God's love. Because, see, while I was breaking God's heart and while I was breaking my family's heart with the things I was doing, God was still pursuing me. And I'll tell you this, 
I had to come home eventually. And you're going to hear it. They're about to play a clip from my brother's sermon um, in Canada that he preached about mercy. But um, I'll tell you this. There was a lot of people when I got home that were willing, um, willing to cast the first stone. There was a lot of people that hated me, didn't want me around. Um, but this guy that you're about to hear was Jesus to me. And um, he was willing to get himself dirty. He was willing to have people question his integrity. He was willing to have all these things so that I could stand here today and tell you about this. So um, I'm going to play this for you. It's about a three-minute clip. And uh, so, yeah, you guys um, just listen to this with me. There was a very talented young man that um, I, had the, I had the pleasure of knowing. Um, this young guy uh, was gifted at everything, music, sports, academically, no issues, straight A's, A's and B's. Don't we just love people like that? <laughs> I hate him. And uh, so anyway, he had no challenges in life. He was so gifted. And it was obviously that obvious that God had just placed his hand on him and just, man, just poured out so many giftings in this young guy. But this young guy begins to make, like a lot of young guys do, stupid decisions. Decisions that he could not foresee at the end. But nonetheless, he starts making them. And as time goes, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. His situation is becoming dire to the point where the young guy's in college. He's at a Christian college. He's a ministry student, and he gets expelled from college. Now he's got no place to go. He's got to come home. He's got to come back to where he knows. So he comes home. He's embarrassed. Everybody knows. Everybody knows he's messed up. And there were a lot of people who were willing to play the role at throwing him at the feet of Jesus and saying, the law says about this person. But fortunately enough, God, through a few individuals, I being one of those, just began to show mercy. And it cost us. People judging us because we have integrity issues. We shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be around this person. You shouldn't be ministering. You're wasting your time. This person's a lost cause. There'll never be anything. They'll never amount. You need to kick them out. We won't, we don't want their influence around other people, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, defying those odds, a few people and myself continue to love and minister and now today that person is a worship pastor at one of the fastest growing churches in Tennessee and that's my brother that guy was Jesus to me fortunately he was my brother um, and I love him he's one of the greatest men I've ever met um, he was Jesus to me when I didn't deserve it And I, he was willing to endure a lot of junk to see me where I am today. He was willing to deal with the ridicule, the people mocking me, the people mocking him for loving me, saying it's a lost cause, you can't love somebody enough to see him healed. He was willing to take all of that. So I guess my question to you guys today is, who's that person for you? Because we all know that person. We all know that person who's far from God. We all know that person who just needs Jesus. And what are you going to do about it is my next question. Because avoiding it won't help. We can't influence a culture that we avoid. Can't. I, I won't read it because of time, but I was going to wrap up with John 8. which talks about the woman. Um, caught in adultery. They throw her at Jesus' feet. And according to Jewish law, that, that was punishable by death. Um, they could have stoned her to death. 
And this week, this, this story took new meaning for me because I think for the first time I saw her face. A lot of times we, we focus on, you know, what Jesus did, which is a good thing. Um, but we focus on what he did in the story and we focus on what the people with the rocks did in the story. But we don't focus on her enough. I can only imagine the desperation and the brokenness she felt at that moment. I can only imagine her looking up at Jesus and saying, not saying, but thinking, if he doesn't step in, I'm dead, literally. And see, Jesus saw her not as a project. Jesus didn't see her as, um, as a piece of trash. Jesus saw her as a person in need of him. And that was me. I wouldn't be here. I'm telling you, I would not be here. I'd be off doing something else, serving myself. But one person, one person started it. He got a few people on board with him, and they literally loved me to where I am now. Who's that person for you, and what are you going to do about it? That's the question today. Because if we leave here and we leave the same, what's the point of even coming? Let's take this and do something with it today. Find your person. Find the, thing that, um, find the thing that detests you the most and run towards it. See what God does. There's hope for the church and there's hope for our culture. There's hope for our city. We just got to be willing to run after them. So uh, the band's going to start coming out. Um, they're going to bring the stuff up here. We're going to sing, sing another song. Um, but I just, I just want to close this in prayer. I just want to... Um, Let's all just to focus on that. What, um, what are we going to do about it? The problem is there, but we have the power to do something. Let's pray. God, we... Um, Lord, we thank you for your love, God, because it's when you were merciful to us. God, that we were saved. God, we could not have done any of this without you, God. We wouldn't be who we are without you. God, just impress that on us, that who we are is not our own doing, God. This, this message of reconciliation, this message of your gospel and your love is not just for a select few, God. It's not just for us to hold on to it, but God, it's to take it and take it to our culture, God, and engage them with your love, God. It's not for love. What's the point, God? Lord, just, uh, Lord, just continue to lay that on us.